Let's get our Bibles out, open to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21, uh, you can find that on page 1212, 1212 on the Pew Bible in front of you. Or you can just open your Bible to 1212 and you'll be somewhere in the neighborhood. Luke chapter 21. Now as we're really starting to turn a corner here, we're, we're about to... Almost in a couple of weeks, we'll be finishing up this section of Luke, and then we'll just be on the home stretch to finishing up this gospel. And I want you to understand that uh, those of you that uh, read ahead or keep track in your Bibles or know where we are, um, maybe it's not all the rain. Maybe some people didn't come today because they knew the text for today. Uh, definitely not uh, people's. Favorite text, I don't know why. I think it's a glorious, wonderful uh, gift from God. And I happen to love it and have been looking forward to uh, teaching you on this text for quite some time. But before we get into this text, I want you to just uh, understand that uh, whenever you're reading in Scripture and you come across uh, a story, a little section of, of Scripture that seems to be a little bit disjointed in its placement in Scripture... Uh, that should clue you into something. You want to take great, uh, you know, time and effort and and thoughtfulness in in getting the context of why that passage is located where it is. And there is no better place to illustrate that than these first four verses in Luke chapter 21. But let's pray first and ask God to bless the preaching and teaching of His Word, and then we'll study together. Father, we thank you. We thank you today for your word. And God, it truly is our greatest earthly possession. Father, if there's anything in this world that we need to carry us through and to help us, it is truth. And Lord, you have given us all the truth that we need. You have given us instruction and and enlightened and empowered us to see and know your nature and character in such glorious ways through your scripture. And God, today we, we ask that you'll use it in our lives, that Father, in this time you'll give us ears to hear and hearts to receive from the glorious, glorious pages of your word. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. So what happens if you take a text... Out of context, you're left with a con. It's not that, right? If you take a text out of context, you're left with a con. And so this is a passage of Scripture that I wouldn't say necessarily has been abused uh, a lot. It's just been sort of uh, trumpeted a little bit out of context. You need to get the whole understanding of what's going on here. And so in order to do that... We need to back up just a little bit to the, the, the tail end of chapter 20 and let's be reminded of where we left off last week because I would have loved to have been able to just preach for two or three hours sequentially through this entire section so that that way we wouldn't have to try to piece it all back together again. But since that wasn't an option, then we're going to do it this way. So let's back up to Luke chapter 20. I want you to remember that we said a couple things last week. We were talking about, I was calling it mixed up religion. And the reason I was calling it mixed up religion is it's, it's, it's false religion, it's man-centered religion, but the reason I call it mixed up religion is because most of the time when we encounter mixed up religion, it's, it's so blended together with uh, biblical concepts and things that are in the Bible, that it's very deceiving. It's hard to see exactly uh, where we're going wrong. And oftentimes, uh, people who are, are caught up in the midst of it are blind because of the, the subtle nuances that lead us astray. And so Jesus was pointing those out. Remember, this is His final public, really, teaching ministry before the cross. And so each time He speaks in these, in these verses is... is are literally the last things he's going to say publicly before he heads to the cross. And so we said that mixed up religion, first of all, uh, is concerned with the outside to the exclusion of the inside. And we looked at verse 46 where Jesus warned his disciples. He said, beware of the scribes 
who desire to go around in long robes. And he was warning them about these religious uh, um, sort of leaders who would parade themselves around in their extravagant clothing and they were, were uh, not concerned about the inside. They were missing the entire point. Then we said the second thing about mixed up religion is that it loves public recognition. And we see that the end of uh, verse 46 says that their greetings in the marketplaces, uh, they were big on that and, the, and having the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at the feasts. And then thirdly, we said about mixed up religion is that it, it lives in contradiction. Remember, I said that when when man begins to come up with uh, his own things to add to religion, Whenever man adds rules to religion and starts making things Scripture that aren't Scripture, it inevitably ends up hurting other people. See, the problem is that in the beginning, it starts out with, well, you know, maybe this is good for me. This is something I need to do. And maybe it is. And so individuals begin to do things that maybe aren't bad things that they need to do, but where it gets dangerous and where Jesus takes great exception to it is when those sort of personal convictions begin to get forced on other people. And that's where the whole contradiction begins to come into play. And we looked at verse 47 that said, these men in the midst of all that they're parading around and presenting themselves to be and do devour widows' houses and for pretense or for show they make long prayers. And so there's this perfect illustration of contradiction of men who are praying these long, eloquent prayers uh, out of the same mouth that they're, uh, they're stealing and devouring widows' houses. And what they would do is rather than uh, care for the elderly as they were commanded to do in the Old Testament, they would just declare that all of their resources have been devoted to God. And they even gave it... Uh, they, they had a name for this process that they would go through and they would say that all of my assets have been Corbin. They've been devoted to God. And so I'm sorry, I would love to help you, but I can't. And they were turning their uh, blind eye to those around them that were hurting and suffering. And so Jesus ends with this scathing statement. He says, these will receive greater condemnation. And so that's the setting that now moves us into Luke 21 Now, Jesus is making these statements to the disciples while sitting outside of Herod's temple. And so he's sitting off to the side. Uh, He can see Herod's temple. He can see the the temple court where people are are coming and giving. Remember, it's Passover time. And so there's great hustle and bustle in the city of Jerusalem. And and the, the crowds are large and the temples are just overflowing with people. And within the temple, there would be 13 shofars, these 13 brass trumpets. And people would come and they would give their offering by dropping their their offering down into these brass trumpets. And so it would make sounds. And so there would be a trumpet uh, for the burnt offering and there would be a, a, a shofar for an offering of wood or a grain offering. And then there would be uh, six trumpets, probably the ones that we're about to read of, these six offering sta- stations that were really for a free will offering that we'll... Read about in Luke 21. Let's look at what Jesus says in verse 1 as he's looking over this scene at the temple, having just described the hypocrisy of the religious system. He says, And he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw also a certain poor woman putting in her two mites. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all, for all these out of their abundance have put in in offerings for God, but she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. And now let's keep reading. And then some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. And he said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So in sandwiched in the middle of Jesus giving this scathing um, observation of the hypocrisy and all that is wrong and how how far off center the religious system had gotten. And then uh, on the other side, we've got him 
looking at this unbelievably, uh, just immaculately adorned temple and declaring that it will soon be utterly and completely destroyed, that he was going to allow that to happen. In fact, 40 years after, the, after him speaking these words, it was utterly decimated. That only six years after its final completion, it ceased to exist. Now, why would Jesus, in the midst of these two concepts, take a breath and focus our attention for four simple verses on the activity of this widow? Well, I think part of the answer lies in the teaching of Exodus chapter 22, where the Scripture says this, The Lord said, You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. You see, God has always been a God who's a defender of the, the poor, of the needy, of the downtrodden, of the defenseless, of the fatherless. That's the God that we serve. And he takes very personally when people take advantage of those people in particular. And so Jesus, in the midst of, of all the declaration that he's making about what's going on and how, how, how religion has really just completely and utterly become so foreign to, to what his father intended in giving the Old Testament, that men had just turned this this practice into everything but what it ought to be. Now, let me just uh, clarify a few things before we move any further. That within the story, there's always another story. There's a story within the story. And so the first broad story is that we all need to heed this warning, as we said last week, to, to slide into mixed-up religion. That we need to be very, very careful and ask ourselves continually, why are we doing what we're doing? And are we doing what the Bible says we ought to be doing? Or are we doing things just because we've decided that's what we ought to do? Because that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And that's really... Listen, these scribes that Jesus is talking about, they, they don't necessarily... Uh, they didn't begin, their life as a scribe did not begin with this desire to be crooked or to be a swindler or to, to do wrong. I mean, especially when you read about the Pharisees, you have to understand that, that the Pharisees, I think more than the Sadducees and the scribes, really had good intentions, but they just lost their way. They just lost their way. And honestly, as as I become more and more involved in, in the situations and the circumstances that are plaguing so many of our sister churches. And, uh, you know, I, I, I sit down and I, I talk with people in these churches and try to find out if there's ways in which they can be helped. I realize that, you know what? Maybe they need to die. They've gotten so far away. From what the Bible says, it's almost that as I, as I read these words that Jesus speaks, He's talking about them. But more importantly, we want to make sure that He's not talking about us. We want to make real certain that we are cautious as we, as God blesses us and as we move forward, that we are, uh, that we understand and know what our purpose and mission is as a congregation and as individuals seeking to be pleasing unto the Lord because it's it's subtle and it it just slowly weaves you into a place of, of legalism and condemnation and things that really have no bearing. And when you when you sit down and you talk with someone that has been and been slowly just accustomed over years and years, like the individuals Jesus is talking about, to this way of sort of religion, then when you ask them, you say, well, they tell you, well, you know, here's what we do. And you say, but the Bible says this. And they just look at you sort of, 
befuddled. They have no response. You know, I mean, literally, churches who don't have any interest whatsoever, and they will tell you this, we're not interested in reaching the lost. That's not a church. I don't even know what that is. That's a club of some kind. Churches that literally say that these are the the rules that you have to conform to before you can even come and visit. And this is what happens. And so what you see here is just as prevalent today as it was as Jesus speaks these words. And so His primary overarching teaching here is to draw attention to this widow to point out the fact that that this widow is worshiping God in the midst of all of this hypocrisy and all of this sort of wayward, man-centered religion. And He points out what she does. Now, we certainly are going to learn a lot this morning by what she does. Because there's so much that we can uh, apply to ourselves and learn from these four verses. But we first of all have to understand that really the primary teaching here is for Jesus to just show her in light of, look, look at what's going on. That while you're devouring widows' houses, while you are not caring for the poor, while you are overlooking the needs around you, Widows are walking into the temple and they're giving all that they have into the treasury. And you simply turn a blind eye. So let's talk a little bit about this widow, really the story within the story. The first thing I want you to see is that um, it, it, it brings out the reality that a little person can have a large impact. Because this widow, it's really profitable to just spend some time thinking about this widow and just thinking about the culture in which uh, she would have lived. And I really just had such a wonderful time in the Lord just uh, studying uh, the, the culture that would have been uh, happening, you know, at this time and the way in which widows were, were treated and the way in which they would have lived and, and all this, the, the nuances of life in a first century uh, for a first century widow. So in verse 2, the Scripture says, And Jesus saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Now, if you're interested in what a mite is, I actually have some here. Now, these are 2,000-year-old Roman coins right here. And they were given to me by my dear friend Sandy Rogers over here. And when he brought them to me, it was shortly after I had... Uh, preached a sermon about the about Caesar and the denarius and so on and so forth. And he brought these to me and I began to look at them and research them and study them. And what I found out is that really these uh, these coins would almost be exactly what this text is talking about. And so I invite you to come up here after the service if you want to come up here and take a look at those coins. But basically, um, he had a an uncle who fought in World War II. He was in the Navy and he uh, wound up, uh, his his ship got uh, bombed and he wound up, uh, those who survived ended up in Rome for to recover and to mend their wounds. And his uncle actually dug these coins up out of a, a bomb crater that was uh, just near the Roman, where the Roman Colosseum is, still stands today. And so it's amazing to to think that here's here's these small little brass mites that this widow would have dropped into that shofar and that, you know, I, I get to to look at these in my office and think about the reality of all that is going on right here in Scripture. And and it's just it's just a wonderful, wonderful illustration. So this woman, she she's poor and she's a widow. You know, we need to notice that Jesus is not necessarily condemning the contributions of the others. He, he's saying that they're giving out of their abundance. He doesn't definitively say that that's wrong. He's just saying, he's just making the point that they're giving out of their abundance. But what he is doing is he's giving great, uh, commendation to the giving of this widow. 
This is a woman who has no position. She has no power. She, she wouldn't have been noticed as she walked into the temple complex. She had no designer clothes. She certainly wasn't uh, appealing to look at, I'm sure. She was probably dressed in what most people would consider rags as she sort of made her way in just very nonchalantly to go and to, to pay tribute to her God. And yet, how many billions of dollars have been given because people have been moved by her story that is recorded for us in the Gospels. And, and this little woman who, who otherwise would have just uh, lived a life of, of complete anonymity, it's a, it's a lie that our world tries so hard to get us to, to believe that our economic position is going to determine our impact in this world. You see, we treat each other, uh, especially in a secular sense, outside of this room, I would hope, the world treats people so many times based on their economic status. But yet here's someone who has no economic status. She has no means about her whatsoever. And Jesus draws out this vast difference between the widow's heart and the heart of those who give out of their abundance. That they give... And that's certainly not wicked or certainly not bad, but it's clearly not the same as the way in which this widow gives. And so the first thing I want us to just see here is that God uses little people to do huge things. And that we tend to push back from a text like this because, oh boy, here's a text that talks about money. But I think that what this text declares more than anything else is that God does not want what is yours. He wants you. That's what He wants. He wants you. And if you just keep that in mind, as you read through the New Testament, as you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus interacts with every person that comes into His, uh, into his life, that He has a conversation with according to His desire to capture them to capture their heart, not to capture the things that they possess. The the second thing I want us to see is that she's going to show us that perseverance is more important than prosperity. You see, as I thought about this, I I saw this woman, this, this widow who puts in two mites. A mite would have, the best way for me to explain it to you, would have been an eighth of a cent. So it was far less than what we would consider a penny. And most of us, if we're walking along and we see a penny, we don't even bother to reach down and pick it up. Well, this was far less than a penny, but she she had two of them. And that's all she had. Uh, in the original language, you you it's very clear, Luke's making very clear that we understand that what she did put in was was all that she had. It was all of her bios, her livelihood, her life. She put it all in there. Now, do you think that this widow, do you think maybe this was the first time she'd come into the temple and, and given? Well, certainly not. You, you, you clearly get the indication that, no, this was, a, this was a way of life for her. She undoubtedly could remember a time when her husband was alive, when things were far better than they were at this time, maybe when, when life was treating her pretty good and she was able to give far more than two mites. But see, on this day, at this time, as Jesus looks across through the crowd and He sees her of all the people as He picks her out of the crowd, this one face in the crowd He sees, she's at a very low place in her life. She's she's not in a place in her life where she would say, oh, you know, you know, Tony, things are so good for me right now. I mean, she's nearing the end of her life. She's probably thought that of all the people that were walking through the temple courts that day, she was probably the one who was given the least, who was making the least impact, who was making no impact whatsoever. I'm sure that in her mind, she was thinking that, you know, really what I'm doing is meaningless to everyone else and probably meaningless to God. But she was there anyway, giving what she had. And and so through perseverance, through the difficulty of her circumstances and situations, she was really making the greatest impact of all, wasn't she? And you see, she hadn't given up because life had gotten hard. 
Think about this with me for a second. Here this woman is, surrounded by injustice. In other words, she's walking into the temple with her two little mites, and all of the religious system around her is, is utter and complete hypocrisy. It's so crooked. It's so bent. It's so uh, deceitful and wrong. And do you think that, that this widow, either herself or with the other widows that she undoubtedly knew, I mean, do you think that the poorest of the poor were ignorant to the fact that the religious leaders were taking advantage of the widows? Well, no. I mean, she knew that undoubtedly. She, she wasn't walking into the temple praising God for these religious leaders and their upright integrity and their care for her and their love for her. No. But yet there she is. In other words, the point I want us to see is that how many of us would just refuse? In other words, in a moment of perseverance, in other words, in a moment where everything in your life declares God has forsaken you, He's forgotten you. He's forgotten you. Everything in your life is going the wrong way. All of your circumstances are bad. What's the point anymore? All you have is two worthless mites. Just go home, buy some crackers, and call it a day. But she doesn't do that. She perseveres. She's not... I'm sure she's interested in prosperity. I'm sure she would like prosperity, but that's not her priority. She perseveres in obedience to the God that she desires to honor. It really is astonishing when you stop and think about it. She hadn't given up on the Lord just because life had gotten hard. But we are so quick to just shrink down in our devotion to God when life is brutal towards us. Yet in Scripture, Jesus continually points out to us individuals who do the opposite. That it seems the harder life gets, the more tragic their circumstances, the more relentless their devotion. wonder why He does that. Could it be that he knew that our tendency would be to follow the flesh and to do the opposite? That the worse things got, the less faithful we see God. The less we want to praise God. The less we pray. The less we worship Him. And we, and we think, well, God, haven't you ever said this? God, if, if you want me to do more, if you want me to give more, if you want me to try harder and to love more, why don't you help me out here a little bit? If you just fix some of my circumstances, I'd be able to do all these things, God. That's not what she's saying. She is merely persevering right through everything that she sees around her. And I think it's an astonishing application for us. You know, Jesus didn't spend three years teaching His disciples how to be well-liked in this world. He didn't, he didn't teach them how to be great and how to achieve positions of power and, and popularity. What did He do? He spent three years teaching these men, these ordinary men, how to persevere in the midst of great opposition and trial. They just... As I just went back and I began, to, I began to, to see this and I began to go back and I just started reading through all over again, just looking back, looking across at all this interaction Jesus is having and all these, these things that Jesus is teaching. And you, you see all, every time Jesus has this, this intentionality about saying, now, it's going to be hard. But I'm preparing you to be able to do this when I leave. I'm preparing you to understand that life is going to be bad. And listen, and, and one by one by one, they're martyred. They're exiled. And they don't waver, do they? They do what this lady did. They persevere through their circumstances. And we marvel. We marvel that men 
would refuse to renounce God, that, that just empowered by the Holy Spirit, they would have this resiliency to, to face death or stoning or whatever the case may be and persevere. We read about Stephen being martyred and just praising God as they're pelting him one after another after another. This great deacon. Not complaining, not turning his back. This widow was being obedient when it wasn't popular. When all the pressure was to do the wrong thing, she was being obedient in her priority. You know, she was the, she was the only one doing what anyone whose top priority in life would do if it was to honor God. I, I mean, in other words, if, if that was... If that was our number one priority in life would be to honor God, to live our lives for the glory of God, just that one declaration to live our life by would have such drastic implications on the way we face adversity, would it not? And so we see that God uses little people to make large impacts. We see that perseverance to her was definitely more important than prosperity. And thirdly, we see that action is more important than awareness. I want you to notice her action in verse 3. Jesus says, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. That, in other words, if someone were to ask her, in the midst of dropping these two mites into the offering, if someone were to come up to her and to say, or or maybe on the way home, and they said, "Well, well, hi, hi, Sue or Mary, how did it go at the temple today? What would have been her response? Would she have said, oh, today was, was so amazing and extraordinary. I was able to do something so great and so powerful. No, she didn't even know Jesus was watching her. She, she had no awareness of the magnitude of what she was doing. She would have said, well, I, I just went and I gave the little bit that I had and I know that it wasn't much and I know that it probably won't make much of a difference, but... I did it anyway because that's what I feel like God would have me to do. In other words, she acted in obedience without any awareness of what was going on around her, of of the magnitude of what was happening. That, That this great act that she did, she had no clue, but she did it. And you see, for us, so oftentimes, we, without really thinking about it, we scale back from doing things that we know we ought to do when really no one else is around. And then when other people are around, we do things that we think they think we ought to be doing. And that is the same pretense that God was talking about with these religious hypocrites. You see, she wasn't, she wasn't aware of how great her giving was. She couldn't have possibly known that Jesus was going to single her out and that this was going to be sealed in the hearts and minds of millions upon millions and millions of people over the next several thousand years. She could have never known that. But she acted in what she knew she ought to do. You see, in God's economy, the position of a person's heart is really the determining factor in the magnitude of the actions that they do. But what I'm saying is is that you have to still Do something. You see, her heart may have have had every intention of doing the right thing. She may have been, been ever so filled with a desire to please God. But if she wouldn't have went to the temple and she wouldn't have acted upon that desire and that devotion, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. And so the point is, We need to respond. We need to act and not be so concerned about awareness. It's a hard issue. I mean, so tomorrow is April 15th, is it not? That would have been good if I would have preached on the text about give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, right? But we already covered that. So you know that. And so here's what's going to happen. You either already have or you will tomorrow. What you're going to do is you're going to write this check out and you're going to 
send it to the IRS in some form or fashion. And here's what the IRS is not concerned about. They're not concerned about whether your heart is overwhelmed with a feeling of, of nice, fluffy joy towards the IRS for this check you get to give. They're, the IRS isn't concerned about, you know, what, you're, what, what you perceive about what you're doing. The only thing they care about is the check. All they want is the money. That's all they care about. Whatever you owe, you need to pay. And the heart's really not in that. Now, it ought to be for us, but for them, it's just about collecting money. But you see, that is completely and utterly different from the way in which God calls us to operate. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where the Apostle Paul says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Don't you see? In other words, that, that it's, it's the heart that is the determining factor. And we could give all of our goods to feed the poor. We could give ourselves as martyrs. But if it's not done in love, it won't profit a thing. And so what does that tell us about this widow? It tells us that these two pennies, these two measly little mites, that when she drops literally into this brass shofar, they, they, they make almost no sound just rattling down to the bottom. And even though there were extremely wealthy people that were coming and they were pouring their gold and silver coins into the offering and making a big show about it, she just dropped her two little pennies in there. But it was a sacrifice of devotion to a God that she esteemed as precious. And it's just a glorious, wonderful reminder that the Lord Jesus, in the midst of everything that's going on, he notices her. He sees her. He, he draws attention to her and He points this out. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, there's a wonderful Scripture and it says, For the, the Lord is the God of knowledge and by Him actions are weighed. That He knows. He knows. And He's weighing our actions. He's, he's looking to see what it is. He's sending thunder at just the right time in case you're sleepy. He knows. <laughs> he knows. And if it's not bad weather, he'll just make my mic start snapping. He'll do it because he knows. Now, the fourth thing I want us to see is that his, the Lord's, evaluation is more important than the world's exaltation. You see, look at verse 3. So Jesus says, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings to God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. And I think the principle here that just leaps off this page is that the size of the gift is not always indicative of the sacrifice. You see, that's what Jesus is pointing out here. That sometimes the size of the gift can be deceptive. The point Jesus is making is not for us to look at what someone is giving to God or what we're giving to God. The point is for us to, to say, well, God, am I giving to you in a way that affects the way that I live? You see, I, I'm not going to belabor this point because we've talked about it before and we all know that it's true. But I think one of the devastating things that we have to overcome in our culture is, is that basically American Christians are people who merely give out of their margin. Whatever we have left over, we give. And it's very rare for someone in our culture, in our time, to give to an extent that it alters their lifestyle. And yet it's the most glorious, wonderful uh, experience that especially a family with young children can can have together of being able to to recognize and have conversations with our children that no we we we're going to go home and eat we're not going to go out and eat because we're we're taking that money and putting it aside so that we can give to support mission so that we can give to the Lord's work you see because we all everyone in this room has margin. 
We all do. And there's money that we can give that won't affect us in the least. And Jesus is not saying that that's wrong. He's simply saying that that's not at all what this widow is doing. And there's a huge difference. And and you need to recognize that and understand that. You see, for us, it's the realization that our life is never going to rise above those whom we're seeking approval from. Let me say that again, because it's where the problem really just hits us right at home. The reason that we have such a strong tendency in our heart to only give out of our margin is because we're seeking the acceptance of the people around us, which is why our giving doesn't affect the way we dress or the things that we drive or the places that we go or the things that we do so oftentimes. But just understand this principle that your life will not rise above those whom you are seeking to reach approval from. And so if your goal and desire is to seek and possess the approval of your Lord and Savior, then that's going to affect the way you understand the act of worship through giving. You see, too often, it's the, it's the gift that the world sees as little that goes unnoticed and is taken for granted uh, by our own human eyes that sometimes and oftentimes is really the biggest gift of all. It's the person who has the least, but who finds a way to do with even less so that they can do for other people. And I cannot teach this text. I cannot read this text. I cannot even allude to this text without thinking of people that I know personally in this congregation who have so little and who work so hard to get by on even less so that they can do things for other people. And I wonder sometimes that when these little seemingly insignificant uh, gifts or offerings are given, you know, when, when the widow uh, sits at home and, and weaves together these little boxes with yarn that, that hold a little game, And then she fills them up in a plastic bag and she brings them to me to bring to Brazil to give out to kids there. Probably what's possessed in that bag probably cost maybe $10. But I think to myself, how pleasing is it unto the Lord as she sat hour after hour knitting those together just so someone else could have joy from it. And maybe she ate a little bit less or just had a can of green beans or whatever the case may be. But I know the Lord smiles down and He looks at that devotion and He says, that's the kind of giving. That's the kind of love. That's the kind of heart that's been captivated by me. You see, whose approval are we seeking? Why why are we so uptight about what everyone else thinks? When that poor widow dropped her money in the offering, it probably seemed like two little pebbles being thrown into the ocean. But she didn't know that God was going to use it like a massive earthquake to alter the understanding of God's followers for generation after generation after generation. In Psalm 139, David says, O Lord, You have searched me and You know me. You discern my thoughts from afar. That God's discerning our thoughts, that He knows. He's not missing what we're doing. And so here's this woman, and there she is. She's all alone, and she's poor, and she's insignificant. And imagine that her great devotion for God is encapsulated in this isolation that she must feel. This 
vulnerability that must follow her everywhere she goes. It certainly was, was unsafe to be a widow alone in this time and in this culture. She had no rights. She had no ability to defend herself or to protect herself. Her word wasn't worth anything against someone else's. And so whatever she did have could be easily taken from her. We don't know what happened to her husband. What we do know is that she was poor. Her level of poverty seems to suggest to me that she didn't have any living children, certainly not a son, it would appear. No savings account, no retirement, no social security. No one paid any attention to her. In every external way, it would appear that God had just forgotten about her, just turned His back on her. That anyone really with any sense would look at this lady who knew this lady and would say, why? Why would you be devoted to a God who could intervene in your life, who could intervene in your circumstances? He could fix all of the things that are wrong. He could have kept your husband alive. He could fix your finances. He could, he could put you in a place of safety. He could do all these things. But why doesn't He? Why? Why would you be devoted to Him? And I don't know what her answer would be. But my suspicion is it would be something like, because He's God. Because He's God. He's the only God. And even if there are things about Him that I don't understand, He's still God. And I'm going to respond to Him as if with every fiber in my heart, I believe that He is God. It's a faith issue, isn't it? It's a faith issue that causes us to begin to, to stumble. A faith issue that begins to cry out to God, God, why are you punishing me? Why, why have you allowed me to get into this circumstance and into this situation? But in the midst of that, you're still God. It's a faith issue that causes us to say, well, I know the Bible says this, but it's a faith issue. If I were a teenager here this morning, here's what I would take note of. I would take note of what we find in four verses is really a blueprint to greatness in the kingdom of God. That if, if you want to know how to be great in this life, here is your perfect example right here. You live your life the way this widow lives her life and God will use you to accomplish extraordinary things. The problem is, is that everything around you is going to declare the opposite. Is that everything around you is going to try to convince you that it's about the prestige and the popularity and what other people think. And especially when God begins to move you in a direction of something that doesn't really make sense to you. It really doesn't make sense. Well, I mean, well, why would, why God, why would you, why would you say that? Why would you want me to do that? Why would you? And the answer is because he's God. And if you just trust Him, and if you just walk with Him, He'll do what you never saw coming. He'll use you in ways you could have never imagined. That whatever it is this morning that you would say, God, this is the one thing about you I don't understand. God, this is the one thing that I just can't seem to get clarity on. Why did this happen to me? Why am I in this place that I'm in? And the answer is, listen, maybe it's not for you to know. Maybe it's just for you to trust and say, He's God. He, he's not obligated to answer all of our questions. But what He has done is He's given us enough to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that He is God. And that there is no other hope outside of Him. But she's still a widow. And she's devoted to Him. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. That God will walk with us and He will comfort us and He will put you. Listen, every man, every woman in this room, whatever you've gone through, it's not, it, it's not to punish you. You haven't gone through something just for the sake of going through it. But in the economy of God, in the kingdom of God, that everything that we face in our lives presents for God an opportunity to use us to then encourage other people who suffer. Listen, no one in this room, in the midst of the the hardest thing you've ever faced, the last person you want to have a conversation with is someone who has no problems and never faced anything, and life has just been simple for them all their days. You don't want to hear from them. What you want is a brother or a sister who's walked through the valley of the shadow of death, who's faced the difficulties and the struggle, who knows what it's like to lay in a hospital bed awaiting the doctor's return, to find out if it's going to be life or death, to to weep and mourn over the loss of your loved one. That's what God uses to do extraordinary things. The problem is, do we want the praise of God more than the praise of man. That's the issue. Do we really want the praise of God more? Or is it about our ease and our comfort and our understanding? We've got to resist the temptation to become so busy that we miss the unnoticeable people and the unnoticeable acts that go on around us every single day. Jesus is facing the cross. I mean, we are about to embark on this rapid-fire sequence of events where the Son of God's life on this earth is coming to a very swift end. And He knows that. And yet in the midst of everything that he has pressing down on him, he is bringing our attention to this little widow that no one even knows of. That no one will ever know her name until you get to heaven. No one would ever notice. You see, think about where we are right now. Think about this temple. As this temple is blessed by God, as we continue to grow, So do our needs. Our needs continue to grow. And we simply can't keep up even with just the needs that are in this room on an average Sunday morning. It's it's just impossible. There's too many people. There's too many needs. And yet amidst the flood of opportunity and blessing, God continues To give us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be used in our community and in our world. And so I would say this to you about this widow. That that don't don't spin this message into just some simple message about, oh, the pastor wants us to give more. Because it's a whole lot more than that. Maybe you're here this morning and you're retired. Maybe you could take a day out of your week and just call up to the church and say, give me a list of all the people that are in the hospital today. And just go to the hospital and visit them. You don't have to know people to walk into a hospital room and encourage them. Greet them. Just say, you know, I want to pray for you and tell you that I love you and I'm glad you're part of my family. Maybe you could do that. Maybe, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. And maybe while the children are at school, you could give some of your time to, to go down to the nursing home and to just... 
go see one of the saints of God who whose eyes have failed them and they're unable to read the Scripture. And you could just sit down in a room and just read a chapter of Scripture to someone who can no longer see well enough to read. Maybe you could do that. You know, as a church, we need to recognize that God has been extraordinarily good to us. And within... Within this body, there are, there are firefighters who have days off during the week who could, who could do things to help, to, to, to build the kingdom, to be a part of what's going on. Do you ever get to the end of a week? Do you ever get home on Friday afternoon and just stop and ask yourself, What did I accomplish this week for the kingdom of God? See, we're good. We're good to come to church and to receive. But what about to go out and to give? To go out and to give of yourself. You know, I'm I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for all the wonderful servants that we have. But one thing that I hear so often, usually when I'm in the midst of some project, and people will say to me, Pastor, I would have done that. I would have been more than happy to help you if I would have known. To which I think, well, you could have asked. You could have picked up the phone and call up Lyle and say, Hey, Mr. Church Administrator, are there any projects around the church that I can help you with? Is there, is there something I can do to be a blessing to you? And then you'd know. You'd know. What I'm saying is this widow illustrates to us we need to take action. We need to take action. No one went to her house and said, Ma'am, do you know what today is? Do you know that today is the day that you need to go and give your free will offering at the temple? So gather up your, your, your stuff and let's, let's get after it. No, she just responded. And Jesus took time to notice that. You know, you're sitting right now. It wouldn't appear today, but you are actually sitting right now in one of the fastest growing Southern Baptist churches on the coast. And with that comes great responsibility. That there are neighborhoods that are springing up all around us that are filled with people. That maybe maybe you and and... Your spouse or you and someone in your Sunday school class could just take some time out of your week and just go and walk around a neighborhood and knock on doors and invite people to come to church. To whom much is given, much is expected. There's so many of our sister churches that are wounded. I mean, and hurting and dying. Some of them need help. There are areas right here in South Mississippi that have no gospel-centered churches. They need churches. And we need to take up the mantle and say, God, we will begin the process of praying and giving sacrificially and seeking your face that we might be able to plant a church in a community that needs a church that look at look at the look at what God raises up in here look at how God continually raises up and raises up people for the work of the ministry people who are gifted to do so many extraordinary things why do you think he does that for our Edification and entertainment? No. No. 
that we might have eyes that look beyond our own four walls and recognize and realize that God has placed us for such a time as this in this community to take action, to respond, to say, God, if there's an opportunity for you to do something absolutely extraordinary beyond any of our wildest imaginations in a little church on a country road, then, Lord, we don't want to miss that. We want to be a part of that. Whatever you have for us, Lord, we're here. That's the the heart of this widow. It's a heart that says, God, thank you so much for giving me breath and life. Thank you for, for placing me in this family. God, thank you for moving amongst us in such a way that we can't deny your power and your presence. That God, may we never, ever, ever take for granted that when we sit here month after month and we watch video after video of testimonies of lives being changed, people being baptized, that we don't ever take that for granted, that we realize that they were once dead and now they live, that dead people come to life right before our eyes in this place. I mean, that's the most extraordinary thing that any of us can ever witness with our eyes. And just because God's moving, we want to remember He doesn't have to. And so when He does, we want to just embrace all that He has for us and say, God, thank You so much. Thank You. Help us to continue to love You, God, with the devotion of this widow. And help us to see the others around us with the eyes of the Lord Jesus. Because if we can do those two things, oh, what God will do. What God could do with what 50 some odd years ago must have seemed like. Why would anyone plant a church there? What a waste of time. They'll probably never even pave John Clark. Let's be serious. But God's watching. And he saw those two mites drop in. And look at what he's done. Maybe you're here this morning. And maybe for you, the lesson in all of this is the fact that God is watching that widow. He's Caesar. And maybe you feel distant from God. Maybe you are distant from God. Maybe you're wrestling through all these questions of, of, of God and salvation and becoming His child and what all this means. Well, let me just start by saying this to you. If I know anything, I know that God knows everything about you this morning. I know that He loves you. And I know that He cares about you. And I know that the Scripture says that He knits you together in your mother's womb. And He's got a purpose for your life. And if you'll just respond to Him in faith, yes, there's questions that are yet to be answered. Certainly, there are experiences in front of you that none of us can predict. But God knows who you are. You're not just a face in this crowd to Him. He knows you. And He loves you. And He's just waiting for you to give yourself to Him. Will you stand and bow your head with me for a few moments? Father, we're grateful this morning. We're grateful as the rain falls outside. God, to be able to come into this place and, Lord, to be able to think and be taught by Your Word.
And Father, thank You. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You that He is the the Savior of the the unnoticed. He is the, the God who looks where no one else is looking. Lord, may that be such an encouragement to us this morning. And God, to prevent our hearts from forgetting that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, Father, thank You that there are people in this room that right now are wrestling through responding to You. God, what a miracle it would be if You would call someone to Yourself today and that they would experience the life that only You can give. Lord, the person who's here who who is just so down, who feels so distant, who's just been in a dark place and struggling that maybe you've forgotten them or forsaken them or moved past them or maybe they've gone too far, done too much. Lord, thank you that that's not true. Thank you that in the midst of our pain, you're still God. Father, thank you today that it's an opportunity to worship you. So Lord, will you take this time and do what only you can do? And we'll give you all the credit and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar's open. If you'd like to come and kneel and pray, I invite you to come. Maybe you just want to come and be prayed for. I'd love to pray for you this morning. The other pastors are here. We'd love to pray for you. If there's some way we can be a blessing to you anyway, just come and take us by the hand. We're here to receive you.